Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Collateral Damage. This is Mike Wilson. I'm here with my co-host Maureen Cavanaugh. Today we have a special guest, Travis Lupik. And uh, you are the author of Fighting for Space. You are a staff reporter at the Georgia Strait. Is that correct? That's correct. Vancouver. And uh, you have um, quite a lot to say about this topic. And I guess uh, uh, I'd like to give our listeners an opportunity to hear kind of what led you to this and what has you out there uh, making so much noise and saying so much about this topic. Well, you mentioned I'm a staff reporter at the, the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver. That's um, that's a weekly print publication, and I'm um, I'm a general assignment writer there. I, I, I mostly write about politics, or historically, I've mostly written written about politics. But really, what we'll write about whatever they need. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, 2014, I guess really, um, I found myself writing more and more about overdose deaths, and then the following year, more and more about um, something called fentanyl, which we hadn't mm-hmm. really. We didn't really know a lot about it at that time. And as time progressed, um, I was writing more and more about overdoses, more and more about fentanyl. Um, my editors at The Strait were really generous with my staff time and letting me devote more and more attention to that topic. And as the deaths in Vancouver and British Columbia uh, just went up and up and up, um, I somewhat organically um, found that topic eventually pretty much took over my entire job. Wow. Yeah, I mean the 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 death toll is staggering. You know, I mean it's it's hard not to to write about that and to investigate it and to identify the fact that it's a really significant problem. Yeah, a little background for an American audience: um, the the severity of the um, overdose crisis in Vancouver is about on par with, say, Philadelphia. Um, by which I mean it's it, it's about as bad as it can get. Wow. A, a quote-unquote normal number of overdoses across the province of British Columbia is about 2,000, sorry, 200 a year, mm-hmm. and we're up at over 1,500 a year. So wow. you know, uh, seven, eight times above what was once considered quote-unquote normal, and that's mm-hmm. where we've been for for more than a couple of years now. How wow. how difficult is it to get help in in Vancouver if you want it? It's difficult. Okay. Vancouver pats itself on the back for for a, a lot of different things it does right with drug policy. Of course, I'm primarily talking about harm reduction. In 2003, Vancouver opened North America's first sanctioned supervised injection facility insight, mm-hmm. and we've long, long led the way on low barrier needle exchange and that sort of thing. But we have not uh, been great about with mental health care, and we have not been great with treatment for addiction, uh, especially treatment on demand. Um, our, our system is siloed, mm. uh, separated across different ministries, different departments, and it is, is very difficult to find a treatment bed uh, when one needs one. Wow. And yeah, I mean, that, that first uh, safe injection set, I've actually heard good things about that. I mean, it's still, still open, correct? Still open, yes. Um, okay. this, this is the primary, um, primary subject of my book, uh, Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users 
transformed one city struggle with addiction. Mm-hmm. I, I recount how um, there's actually a group of drug users themselves, the Vancouver area network of drug users sort of formed a union in the late 1990s and then unofficially partnered with a nonprofit housing provider called the Portland Hotel Society. And through activism, through applying pressure through government, uh, through building a wide coalition of allies, uh, mothers of, of children who had, had uh, died of a drug overdose, uh, we established that first supervised injection site in 2003. And it's mm-hmm. still there in the same location, 139 wow. things. That's great. And I should emphasize, since 2003, not one overdose death ever. Wow. Well, I mean, that is the point, right? I mean, it's, uh, we have this, uh, you know, kind of a saying down here, which is that you can't help them if they're not alive. You know, exactly. there's a lot of people that are pushing up against, and I mean, I've even seen, uh, um, you know, certain chiefs of police say, we're not going to use Narcan, just let them die. You know, I've seen people push up against it. Like, why are we promoting this? Why are we, you know, why are we giving them a safe place to do drugs? And I, I, I get what they're saying, but at the same time, like, how can you help them if they're not there? You know, like these people are sick, they need our help. And, you know, these are the services that are keeping people alive. These are the grassroots organizations that step in and make policy change and create new options for people. And I love yeah, it. Yeah, you, you can't get into treatment if you're dead. And mm-hmm. what insight does is keep people alive. Mm-hmm. It, it also functions as a, directly as a doorway to treatment. That is not insight's primary function. And treatment is never pushed on mm-hmm. clients of insight, you know, they don't hand pamphlets. I don't even believe they have pamphlets um, displayed uh, for treatment, recovery, that sort of thing. But there are nurses, uh, there are social workers there. And if you ask for, uh, if, you, if you enter a conversation about treatment, uh, then they can definitely help connect. So a lot of people find a treatment through the supervised injection facility. It's mm-hmm. kind of a, a lesser story about insight that I don't think has been told uh, loudly enough. It's so yeah. important too, because I think a lot of people don't understand that is that that's that's very often what happens is that people go in for one reason and wind up finding another reason to you know another another purpose of it exactly and let's you know let's paint um a sort of either or a before and after picture um this person who struggled with a heroin addiction perhaps for years is going to inject drugs on on that given day um they can do so um, in an alley Mm -hmm. using puddle water and maybe with supervision of a drug dealer or a friend uh, certainly not a healthcare professional, or uh, they can inject those drugs inside Insight, where it's a registered nurse looking over their shoulder who knows all sorts of, who uh, has all sorts of information uh, about treatment, recovery, detox, if that's what that client wants. Mm-hmm. I was, um, I re- recently started to go to a local um, coalition meeting because I had just moved, so I was trying out the local coalition to see whether they would allow me to stay <laughs> once I started talking. But um, that was that was a big point of concern is that um, they were talking about how um, they were going to write a strongly worded email to uh, somebody who was running for office because he was in support of safe injection sites. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mentioned your book. I mentioned mm-hmm. no one, no one ever died in a safe injection site, blah, blah, mm-hmm. you know, and they were, I don't, I haven't heard when the next meeting is. I think they took me <laughs> off the list. <laughs> but I, I mean, I do think that that's, that's a very important concept that people don't get. This yeah, is and you know, I, I think uh, people think that they're gonna. There's gonna be people wandering by, and will want to, you know, maybe try heroin for the first time. Like, like it's a, like it's a storefront, and they really they get to watch. Think and... That I really do. I, I as crazy as that sounds to us, I really, I think that they think that you know, it's when they used to give out condoms. It's gonna make people want to have sex. Mm. 
because like they didn't want to have sex before they had a condom, yeah. you know? <laughs> and I mean, I, I do get the um, hostility, the resistance to supervised injection. I really do. You know, is it enabling? Are you promoting drug use? But if you visit Insight, it's just not a fun place. Mm-hmm. This is not heroin chic. This is not mm-hmm. William Burroughs. There's nothing cool about having to give your name to somebody at a front desk behind a computer and then sit down at a cold metal booth, you know, surrounded by other people, many struggling with health issues, um, and, you know, inject this drug, engage Mm -hmm. in this very, very private, very uh, intimate, um, for some people, shameful activity with all these people around you. The Mm -hmm. people who inject drugs at Insight are not there having a good time. Um, They're there maintaining an addiction that they've struggled with for many years, usually. Are just trying to do it in the safest environment possible. Um, so I, I think if you think insights promoting drug use, actually visit the place. It's not that cool. Well, I think the uh, the uninformed probably see it as a social lounge, you know, exactly. with some leather chairs and you know a nice safe place to inject and then hang out and just kind of hang out with your buddies. Like I imagine they they're uneducated, uninformed, you know, not looking into it. But this is this is built off of an existing model uh, similar to the one that uh, was started out in like Portugal, correct? Um, you know, the harm uh, reduction Portugal, model, but, but Nordic states primarily okay. um, was, right. was what the insights founders were looking at in the early 1990s. Okay. Um, insights been there since 2003, but these sites have operated in, in Europe in various different ways for much longer. And I okay. should mention some of them actually are more com- comfortable. Um, the are government they? of British Columbia uh, essentially forced a medicalized sterile model on insights founders, the Portland hotel society and the Vancouver area network of drug users. But there are some uh, supervised injection sites uh, operating in Europe that have taken a more comfortable approach, uh, perhaps more similar to um, um, marijuana consumption spaces in Europe and Amsterdam, for example, more like cafes. Well, that aligns um, with the decriminalization, right? Like they, they exactly. actually have, they took another step that most places haven't that allows for those things to take place, right? Exactly. And I've argued in favor of both models. Mm-hmm. I think that um, insight, it's functional that insight is not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, you know, it's not heroin chic. It's not William Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, it, it may, you know, it may be a more radical opinion, but why not? If we really want to drop stigma around drug mm-hmm. use, if we really, really want to essentially end stigma, then I think we have to increasingly normalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd have to be careful how we do that. But, you know, if you fully believe that drug users deserve all the rights of anybody who consumes alcohol, for example, um, then I, I, I see valid arguments for more comfortable consumption spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that would be the, that, that's actually the battle I hear all the time. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea of decriminalizing and treating like a public health issue. And, you know, what I always bump into is the folks that when we start talking about decriminalizing or legalizing or anything along those lines, people get into, so you're going to provide it for them. You're going to make it comfortable for them. You're going to, why are we doing this? Why are we normalizing it? It's supposed to be wrong. It's why it's illegal. Very prohibition stance of if it's not here, people won't look for it. People won't use it. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I'm sure there's good points on each side of that, but I I happen to land on the side where decriminalization and treating it like a public health issue makes the most sense. But, you know, we have a, pretty big country to try to change down here and that's going to take a really long time <laughs> and increasingly since the publication of fighting for space um you know i answer I answer this question with american audiences a lot how do we get a safe injection site in our state mm-hmm. um and i'm increasingly not pessimistic but i'm, I'm cautious with my answer um mm-hmm. 
because in many ways, the government of, governments of the United States function more as a continent than a country. Um, mm. You know, there's so much power at the state level. Yep. So the fight for insight that was fought in Canada through the late 90s, 2000s, is going to have to be fought 50 times mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. This is going to be a long um, struggle. And uh, another point I emphasize is that the fight, you know, Vancouver pats itself on the back today, but that's not how this thing started. I bet. The fight for Insight was long. I mean, it mm. was almost, it was two decades. And then even after Insight was established in 2003 in Vancouver, the federal government uh, took it to the Supreme Court of Canada. And there mm. was another almost decade long fight after Insight was established. Yeah. So this is, um, this is going to be a long conversation. With all I've, that that's been done, how many people do you think on a daily basis use the facility? Oh, I wish I had those numbers in front of me. Um, it's hundreds, I know for hundreds. sure. Hundreds? Mm. And uh, oh. for a long time, from 2003 to 2016, Insight was the only supervised injection site in Canada. Then we had a change of government, um, and the new federal government changed regulations to make it more, to streamline the application and process. Um, and so from 2003 to 2016, Canada had one supervised injection site. Since 2016, we've now opened dozens of them across the country. Uh, still not one death at any of these facilities. Um, thousands and thousands of visits every single day. Mm. Um, in, in Vancouver alone, there's, I believe, half a dozen supervised injection facilities opening now. Um, hundreds and hundreds of overdoses every year, especially since fentanyl arrived. And again, never one death at any of these locations. So there's thousands of people that potentially could have passed away. Absolutely. I mean, I, they, they do track very carefully um, overdose reversal numbers wow. and uh, overdose reversal numbers, in, in, even including naloxone versus that don't include naloxone. Um, they track all this stuff very closely. And it's, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, uh, collectively thousands of overdose reversals, by wow. which we mean lives saved uh, these facilities. That's amazing because I know, I mean, I know firsthand what happens when someone is, I mean, it, and I know that people get tired of this. They think, well, you're going to reverse hundreds of, of overdoses and then they keep overdosing and now they're going to the safe injection site and they're getting revived in overdoses and after overdosing. But I know personally what happens after somebody has maybe been revived 20 times, sometimes that they, they, they wind up turning their whole lives around and, um, and going on to, um, you know, do wonderful things. So mm -hmm. this is this is what we have to keep in mind that it some at some point it often stops for people. They just need that time and support. I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, sometimes it it takes that fifteenth overdose, and if that's what it takes, then let's get that individual to that fifteenth overdose, and that's mm -hmm. what these injection sites do. Right. Well, I mean, I, you talked about us in, in here in the United States. If we were to if we were to try to go down this road, we'd have to fight 50 battles and we'd probably have to fight 51 or 52 because there's the state and then there's the federal and then there's the you know, then there's the Supreme Court because we'd get hit with that, too. The people would fight this to the end. Um, but, you know, the, the as far as the the service itself, I mean, just the simple fact that any injection site can say that they've kept hundreds of people alive. Um, you know, on a daily basis or given hundreds of people access to a safe place to do something they were going to do in a dangerous way anyway. And if even one of those people goes on to get well, it's a success, yep, <laughs> you absolutely. know, and that's that in itself speaks volume. Uh, and that's a huge piece of the insight story. 
Um, you know, I, I live in, in Vancouver's downtown east side, downtown east side where Inside is located, and you know, I bump into people all the time um, through my work as a journalist there who, who, who have stories about um, finding abstinence through Insight. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a facility, a much lesser known facility called Onsite, which occupies the floor directly above Insight, and mm-hmm. it doesn't have a lot of beds there. It's, it's a recovery facility, and it, it only has a couple dozen beds, but when they're open, you can be inside the injection room at Insight and begin a conversation about treatment, and then they'll take you right upstairs. It's amazing. And you can, begin, you can begin that journey to recovery right there in the same building that a lot yeah. of people have. And that's that that's that same European model that we were talking about earlier that, you know, I believe they have that layered same, you know, same approach where there's the uh, injection site downstairs and I they use um, uh, heroin instead of uh, they actually give uh, doses out, correct? In Europe? In some locations. In some locations, yeah. You, you're not, Insight does not do that, right? They just Insight provide. Insight does not provide drugs. Okay, so they're not providing they're, uh, any MAT, medication assisted treatment on no. the first first floor? No, they don't. No, okay. they don't offer any of those drugs. Um, they can definitely connect you. Okay. Um, and, this, and over the last couple of years, there's an increasing number of locations in the area who actually do offer clean drugs. Um, oh. There's been a prescription heroin uh, diacetyl morphine program that operates on a very, uh, not quite experimental, but almost experimental basis. But 100 patients receive prescription heroin in Vancouver now. Wow. And about 200 patients at various locations now receive hydromorphone, a brand mm-hmm. name dilaudid in the United States, yep. as a clean alternative to street drugs. Interesting. I'd be curious this, to see what the results are. This is what I uh, describe as Vancouver's next step in harm reduction. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's primarily a response directly to fentanyl. It's the government recognizing people are always going to use drugs, and mm-hmm. Vancouver, Vancouver, British Columbia, North America's drug supply is so increasingly polluted with fentanyl and so many people are dying um, that we need to begin experimenting at least with clean supply. And that's what's happening mm-hmm. in Vancouver. So there's about 300 people now in Vancouver, either receiving prescription heroin or uh, injection dilaudid from the government on the government's wow. time. Wow. That's, that's huge. That's a huge response right there. I mean, I've always, I've always struggled to, um, it was, ne- it was never about n- not being able to accept or agree with harm reduction. It was like, you know, as a person in recovery, I know that, and I know this is something that people are struggling with this concept now, but for me, it was the, it was the, the desperation that addiction caused in my life. And it was the pain that it caused that led me to seek out recovery in the first place. And, you know, one of the things I struggled with early on was that if we took away that desperation in, in recovery, call it the gift of desperation. If we take away that desperation, then people don't actively pursue a true recovery path. They, they get more complacent just uh, uh, treating the symptoms of it and they stop trying to fight for that real internal change that's necessary to get well. And that was, that was always the battle I had for years. And, you know, I think the, the overdose epidemic, if you will, like the fact that people are, are dying more and more and, the, and that we're losing people, it, it did shift my perspective a little bit that, you know, even though um, that doesn't equate recovery, like being on a, a medication to treat the symptoms is not the same as being in recovery. It does keep people alive and it creates a, a pathway for them to, to ultimately get to that place. But it was just hard for me to reconcile uh, initially. It, it was hard for me too. And uh, I'll tell you how I changed my mind uh, on safe supply, clean supply, and um, what's essentially a mini legalization model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, supplying drugs via the government. Um, in 2013, 12, I think maybe it was 2013, I did a story for, um, for Al Jazeera 
the, uh, the time was an American outlet since, since collapsed. But I, I did a story about harm reduction in Vancouver. And I, I, for researching that story, I spent a lot of time at Crosstown Clinic, which is the home of that prescription heroin program that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really blown away by, by what I saw, the changes in clients' lives that had occurred there. And then I continued to do stories about uh, that group, uh, that prescription heroin, uh, those prescription heroin users, meeting them, checking in with them every six months or so for the next three, four, five years now. And the changes that I've seen in, in, in these individuals' lives are just so remarkable. Most of them are still on heroin, mm-hmm. but most of them are at significantly smaller doses. Um, all of them are in stable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say plus 90% of the men uh, no longer uh, commit any sort of crime um, beyond perhaps a little illicit drug use on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite uh, changes, or my favorite change, um, is in is in Crosstown Clinic's uh, female client population. About plus 90% of them were engaged in sex work before entering this program, mm. and that percentage number is now zero. Wow, that's huge. I mean, and that's that, life changing. That that won me over. That statistic alone. Mm. Um, when you strip away the um, illegal classification of this drug so many other harms begin to fall away. Mm-hmm. Um, homelessness, you know, fear of persecution, um, you know, uh, the, the criminal activity, all that sort of thing. Um, and after a couple years in this program, uh, a lot of its members rejoin the workforce. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, they're contributing to the illegitimate economy. Uh, it, it, I shared a lot of the attitudes that, that, that you said you once did towards these sorts of programs. I was highly skeptical. And it was getting to know this, this group of really, really amazing people um, and how their lives changed in this pres- prescription heroin program uh, mm-hmm. over several years that won me over. It's, imagine, it's amazing what, what we just leave um, our judgment aside and, mm-hmm. and look at things with empathy and compassion, mm-hmm. the difference that that makes. And let's just look at, you know, like, what are we ultimately trying to achieve here? Um, if it's improved health outcomes, if it's stable housing, you know, if it's um, less criminality, um, it, the Crosstown Clinic and its prescription heroin program achieves all of these things. Mm-hmm. And there are Crosstown cl- um, Clinic patients who have found abstinence. Mm-hmm. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of Collateral Damage. Now, please take a moment to recognize our sponsors. I hit rock bottom so hard that I bounced twice. My disease had me battered, beaten, and broken. I used to live and live to use. Nothing mattered to me. And it wasn't until I entered a detox that I had, you know, trained clinical professionals that were able to help combat my disease of addiction. At Sunrise, we understand the courage it takes to look in the mirror and go, I just can't do this anymore. Give Sunrise a call. If you're even thinking about it, your recovery has already started. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. And now back to our episode. After all of those stressors are removed, people find that there is less reason to do drugs. And mm-hmm. voluntarily, because um, Crosstown Clinic does not push abstinence in any way, it really leaves each client's life in, in their own control. Um, but through this program and through stripping away stresses of homelessness, criminality, all that, um, there are Crosstown cr- patient clinics who have access to free pharmaceutical-grade heroin who have chosen to stop using it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, if, if I go back to my own uh, days of active use, I mean... I didn't necessarily have a drug problem. I had an access to drug problem. I mean, that my my entire 
uh, criminal history is based on the fact that I did those things because I needed money, because I needed drugs. You know, I was um, in any of the domestic situations or any of the arguments I had or any of the real problems that I had, my homelessness, everything was, uh, you could bring it right back to my substance abuse issues and my pursuit of money or my pursuit of substances. And, Cross you know, clinic. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. I was just going to say that if, if uh, to your point, like if the, if the true goal of harm reduction is to, uh, to limit the damage one's doing to oneself, as well as the community and society that they live in and their family system and everybody that they directly impact, then yes, that service would work. I think Crosstown Clinic is, is uh, I had heard the idea, you know, it's not drugs that do the most harm, but the laws that make them illegal that do the most harm. And I, it was inside Crosstown Clinic and getting to know the patients there where I, you know, I, I saw that with my own eyes in the most literal sense. Mm-hmm. It was not the drugs that were hurting these people the most. It was the laws that make them illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that prohibitionism. I mean, we have that down here and I think every president in the last 50 years has, has implemented it in some way and, 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 you know, has said they were going to do it differently, but just ended up doing it the same way. It's this big war on drugs. Let's, let's fight the access. Let's make sure people don't have it as though that's the solution. And it's definitely not because <laughs> otherwise we would have won it by now with the tens of billions of dollars that have been spent, but. Right. Throwing people into jail, you know, which reminds me, I was just reading through your articles and I um, reread the article that you did with Jess Tilly about this time last mm-hmm. year about um, the groups of people that were signing on to um, almost like a do not resuscitate, but it was a do not prosecute. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this, Mike? I have not. So Jess Tilly is one of, uh, she's in the, the, the head, I think she's the head of the Drug Users Union out in uh, Western Mass. I want to say she was on that show with you and I, wasn't she, Maureen? Yes, she was. That's right. The yeah. BUR, yeah. Yeah, so last Leading year. Leading drug user out of Massachusetts. Uh, she established the New England uh, Drug Users Union, remarkable woman, remarkable yeah. mm-hmm. Really pretty incredible. But why don't you tell talk about the article instead of me talking about it? Because you have a better job than I will. <laughs> well, this all concerns something called um, a drug-induced homicide charge or a death by distribution law. Mm. Um, it, it's a tool that has been around for a long time, but was never really used. Um, but since fentanyl, prosecutors across the United States are increasingly charging uh, quote-unquote dealers with these new laws, um, saying you're not only... Um, you're not only guilty of dealing drugs, you're guilty of murder, uh, manslaughter, homicide, that sort of thing. Mm. Now that can, that will probably sound good to a lot of people in theory, you know, drug dealers prey on people and we want to hit them with everything we can, Mm -hmm. but how the drug is actually, how the law is actually used, which has been observed over the past five years as it's used more and more in a number of states um, is that it's not charging quote unquote, quote unquote drug dealers. Um, It's, friends, um, family, um, girlfriends, like spouses who are right? hit with this law. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, we, we don't have reliable statistics because it's state by state, um, mm-hmm. but um, plus 50%, it sounds like a ballpark to me. Mm-hmm. Um, is, so here's a, it's to really make it crystal clear, here's this sort of situation uh, where, where these laws are often applied. Um, a man goes out, leaves his girlfriend at home, they're both addicted to heroin, have been for years, and he picks, picks up a couple points from their dealer. He comes home. Um, this, this couple injects in bed together and they go to sleep and this man wakes up in the morning and his girlfriend does not. Is this man a drug dealer? I would argue he's not, but he is the kind of individual that these, oh, against which these laws are act, are actively applied. 
And now, not only did this man lose his girlfriend the love of his life, but he has to sit in jail for the rest of his life for her death. Wow. So what Jess Tilly and uh, Louise Vincent in North Carolina, what this pair of women has been doing, is promoting um, this, this, this idea called the Do Not Prosecute Order, which says, uh, again, kind of like a, a um, it, it says, if I die of a drug overdose, do not convict my dealer for my death, essentially. Wow. Um, it's saying, it's, it's drug users saying, I do not want, you know, my friends, my family, my loved one um, charged in my name. I mm-hmm. did this drug on my own, on my own accord. This was my choice. Mm-hmm. Don't charge my dealer. Um, many of which are not even dealers. Right. I mean, I, I, I always fear any type of a blanket response in one way or the other, um, you know, because there are both, you know, there are actually dealers out there who are maliciously putting drugs in bags and, and maybe should be, should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law based on their malicious acts. And then there are those other people, like you said, on the other end of the spectrum that are friends and family members who, you know, I mean, as an active addict, I know what it was like when I was out there that you know, we all just helped each other out, which meant that on any given day, I could have been considered a dealer. Um, you know, and we actually want people helping each other out. Mm-hmm. You know, especially since fentanyl, we do not want drug users using alone. That's mm-hmm. the number one rule of heroin use in 20 ti- 2019. Mm-hmm. Do not use alone. because You always want someone there to catch you if you overdose. Right. Right. But what drug-induced homicide laws do is promote, uh, promote drug use alone um, because they create the risk that if you're in a pair, mm-hmm. your partner's going to be charged. Right. So, I mean, these, these laws just accomplish the absolute opposite of their intention they're not saving people from drug use they're causing overdose deaths Mm -hmm. well i think it's a scare tactic you know um to try to prevent people from selling the drug in the same way that the war on drugs has been trying to keep the flow of it from coming in and yet we're still the number one consumer in the world for all substances made and grown everywhere (laughs) um and you know the battle to keep it out just causes people to find ways to get it in so it's it's, it's a losing battle but Mm -hmm. You know, in that same way of trying to scare people of, you know, if you get caught, all it does is change the dynamic, like you said, of how people are using, making them more unsafe, uh, more scared to be supportive, uh, more scared to help each other out, which sounds like the opposite. Yeah, I mean, again, I get the logic. Um, let's mm. scare drug dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, you sort of follow it, follow it to the next step and you ask yourself what we're actually trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these manslaughter charges, these drug-induced homicide charges are not the way to accomplish what we want, which is to keep people alive. Mm, I agree. Well, I, I mean, I love your book. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I really, lo- I love that you have so many of your articles on, um, on your website, on the Fighting for Space website. So, because you always write about things that are that challenge the way you think about a certain situation. I think I, I, that's what I find in people that are challenging those, those ideas of what, what's okay. Like what's on the edge, you know, the, the, the questions that we might think a little bit differently about if we were given more information. So I would encourage people to go on there and take a look at some of those articles, particularly the article that you did on May, but <laughs> and now when when was, I was that just article about to say i uh, i love your book i loved your book very much i read it in a single sitting over over a weekend actually 
I couldn't put it down either. I she actually I didn't read it for a long time, and it's it's right here. I don't know if you can see it in the video. That I can. Little, he's yeah. got to leave it up there and, all the time now. Yeah, well, I have, so I can keep pointing to it. And I'm I'm so proud of it that I read it because I I, I don't read a lot of books, and so she got me, <laughs> and I I sat down and I did it in two quick sittings, just like you said. Yeah. It was so I just jumped right in. I couldn't stop. So visceral. I mean, it was all. It was so. It was so honest. Mm-hmm. And I love that that it proved a point that you mentioned earlier. You know, if it takes somebody 15 tries um, to make it to abstinence, if yes. it takes 15 overdoses, then we're going to give them 15 tries. Yes. Because, you know, if that's well, what it takes, that's what it takes. Let's the get face them to that, abstinence. My daughter is the face of that. Two years she has now, and she's got a beautiful life and, and works and contributes to society and has um and inspires other people mm-hmm. so it's you know it, it there's not a time limit on how much uh, uh, it take it takes as long as it takes right and you ask any mother on any other disease no you ask any mother who's lost a child or almost lost a child if they're okay with somebody monitoring uh, uh, the person they love with with because they're going to use anyhow in a safe way to make sure they don't die i don't think you get too many arguments this was actually a big piece of the insight story that I recount in Fighting for Space. Uh, I mentioned earlier that a lot of Americans ask me now, how do we bring a safe, safe injection site to the United States? Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the reasons I wrote Fighting for Space. It's kind of like a how-to, um, an activist's guide um, for, for promoting harm reduction and establishing injection sites. And a, a big piece of that story, the insight story in the late 90s, was exactly what you just said. It was um, mothers of children who were addicted to drugs telling politicians my kids out there, they're somewhere in that rough part of town looking for drugs. They're, they're in, you know, a vacant apartment building. I'm injecting drugs where no one's watching them. I want a safe injection site so that if I go to their room in the middle of the night and they've snuck out, I want a place where I can go and try and find them and ask if anybody's seen them. And today, you know, this is, you know, this is an awful, this describes an awful situation, but it could be worse. Um, mm-hmm. th- th- parents go to Insight looking for their children in the middle of the night and, and they can find them there. I shouldn't say children because insight is primarily an older population. Yeah, but, but they're always children. <laughs> <laughs> of course, exactly. <laughs> um, it was a part of the, a big piece of the insight story. It was parents asking the government for an injection site, saying mm-hmm. we want a nurse looking over their shoulder instead of a drug dealer, and we mm-hmm. want them using drugs in a clean, sterile um, healthcare environment as opposed to you know a vacant somewhere. Right. I mean, the pa- nobody. The power of moms. You That's know what it. it is. Power <laughs> of moms. <laughs> Nobody wants really? the child using drugs, but more so you don't want your child to die, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I personally believe that everybody would find some level of being well, whatever that is to that person, given enough time and support. Mm-hmm. Here and, I'll mention that about the most vocal group arguing in favor of a regulated supply of clean opiates is a, a group, a national group in Canada called Mom Stop the Harm. And this is a group of mothers that uh, started um, in, in British Columbia and Alberta, which now has chapters right across the country, that's telling the federal government of Canada, if our kids are going to use drugs, we don't want them using fentanyl. Uh, provide a regulated supply. It's, it's mothers. So that, I mean, that power of moms, like I, I know we have movements down here, Maureen, I know that you are connected with a, a, lot, of, um, a lot of moms who are trying to uh, create change and uh, yep. policy change, and, and it's working. You yeah, know, I mean I that's, that's Magnolia. Twenty, there's twenty five thousand mostly moms in mm-hmm. those in those groups. Right. That's a strong lobby. It is. So, yeah, but well, that's like, interesting. I'll have to look into that group. That's yeah. Very interesting. I mean, mom, stop the harm. Then they have a website. They're on social media, 
and they are their voice is loud and increasingly gaining traction across Canada. Awesome. I mean, don't get in the mo- don't get in between a mother and their child. <laughs> Bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> and so now your your book is available to our listeners everywhere. Amazon.com. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and exactly. uh, okay, and you have space. a uh, you have a website here, fightingforspace.com. Yeah, and there's um, links and, to where you can get it there. Um, I, right. I, I um, you know, I don't mean to sort of promote myself here, but it was written sort of as a it's a chronological narrative that tells a story, mm-hmm. um, but it was written as sort of a how-to guide. How was this accomplished in Vancouver? If I want to if I want to open a supervised injection site in my town, how do I do that? Okay. Um, this is a roadmap. Wow. So I would definitely, I mean, any of our listeners who are uh, trying to do something or create some change in their own space, in their own town, um, that this would definitely be the book for them to, uh, to read and, and maybe even gain some insight into the steps that they should take, correct? I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, heard, I've received great feedback. I know that, that Fighting for Space has been uh, circulated around City Hall in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, in Denver. Um, politicians from those cities have reached out to me. It, mm-hmm. It's... Uh, that's been some of the best feedback I've received that it's actually reaching policymakers. I would also challenge challenge people that disagree with this to read it. Open your mind up a little bit. And, you know, before you, because I I just keep seeing that people have a lot of ideas about this, but they don't understand, they they haven't looked into it enough. Mm -hmm. And, And they've formed all their opinions without the knowledge that, that you know that it would require to really form an opinion mm-hmm. so you can still disagree but at least open your mind up and and read read something that's very informative and well written and really very interesting mm-hmm. thank you well i'm always open to new things and you know I, I i bring with me in my own recovery i bring a lot of preconceived notions right i bring a, just like a lot of people do i bring a lot of like well, you know, this isn't how we did it 50 years ago. You know, this isn't how I got well. This isn't what worked for my loved one. And, you know, I brought a lot of that with me and it was really hard to let go a lot of a lot of that. And I think, you know, people like yourself writing books like this and sharing the, the facts, the data. I mean, just what I learned here today, um, which I love learning things on this podcast, but what I learned here today is that, you know, there's, there's a safe place for people to do something they're going to do in an unsafe way anyway. And there's a lower likelihood of them overdosing and passing away. And there's a better chance that by being there, they would have access to professionals that could get them another level of care if necessary. And that if they got well, they could come back to their family, to their loved ones, to their communities. Mm -hmm. They could become citizens, taxpayers. They could become politicians, musicians, the people that we cherish in our world right now. And, you know, if it wasn't for things like that, then, we would lose them. I, uh, Maureen and I were just sharing a quote earlier um, that I pulled off of Facebook and let's see if it's still there. It's not, I missed it. That's over. I won't be able to scroll and find it again, but it was very nice. And it, you know, talked about, uh, you know, if people that we knew had passed away before they became who we knew, like, hmm. you know, Malcolm X passed away at 20 years old. He was a totally different person. Like we, we would have lost Angela. that. Maya yeah. Angela was the other one. Exactly. And so, you know, these, these people, that, you know, these hundreds of people that are coming through and, and have a safe place to do this and are not passing away could be those people. Like these, these are people that we want to keep alive. And, and the numbers, like that's the piece that actually convinces mm. me is the numbers say it's working. If those people are staying alive and even just one of those people goes on and gets well because they stay alive, to me, that means it's working. If they're not out there causing harm in their family and their community, it means it's working. And it's hard to dispute those facts, even though I come with preconceived notions. So to Maureen's point, if you're listening and you don't agree, 
read the book, figure it out for yourself, look at the numbers, you know. Like, supervised injection sites, supervised injection sites, uh, regulated supply, these mm -hmm. ideas sound controversial, but learn they about scary. them. And acknowledge that. They do mm -hmm. sound scary. Mm -hmm. So let's learn about them, let's talk about them. Mm -hmm. All we're trying to do with these ideas is keep people alive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm really grateful. I appreciate you coming on. And, you know, normally we ask people if they could change one thing, what would they change? And it sounds like I know your answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, <laughs> if there was something about this, this industry or the way people approach this particular situation, what would you change? At this point, 2019, uh, we need to legalize and regulate drugs. And that's an idea that sounds scary. Like you mm. just said, it absolutely does. Um, let's be honest about that. It sounds scary. Let's be honest that it's going to cause new problems because mm -hmm. it will cause new problems, but it will solve this immediate problem of 72,000 fatal overdoses in the United States last year alone, mm -hmm. 64,000 the year before that. You know, that's mm -hmm. 130,000 people dead in two years. It's and legalization numbers. and regulation would solve that problem. Mm -hmm. It would create new challenges. Mm -hmm. I don't think we want Purdue Pharma in charge of our heroin supply. They I don't have a great no track record on that. Yep. So it's going to be complicated. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be hard. It's going to create problems, but it will solve this immediate problem of 72,000 overdoses a year. And we mm -hmm. have to solve that problem. Well, it's like, I mean, uh, and, and that's a perfectly stated point is, you know, you look at it, it has happened. It has gotten to this point and it's broken. You know, the, the, the way we deal with this thing is not correct. And the, the, if you if you think about the word solution, what is the solution to this? I agree with you. Ultimately, that's going to be the solution. It's the only way for us to change it, regulate it, treat it. Um, in the meantime, um, I think what we're doing is we're very triage focused, very reactive. You know what I mean? There's a, a story I, I don't I can't even remember where I heard it now. I'm sure if I if I knew, I'd give them the credit. But you know, you're standing by a river and you see all these people floating by in a river, and we're so caught up pulling people out of the river that we're not asking why they're jumping in in the first place. You know what? We got to send someone back to go address that issue, and you know it's it's if if we're it's looking at this. That's a story I tell in Fighting for Space. Is it um, really a, a different version of it? It's an it's an old um it's an old story that's been passed down through generations of indigenous mm -hmm. people in Canada. Yeah. Um, but it's it, so it's not quite the same story, but a different version of it that that I discuss in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's it's true. I mean, if you're if we're if we're so focused on treating what's right in front of us. We're not actually solving the problem, so to speak. And, and this, this idea that, you know, it's a scary idea. It's terrifying. Like you just said, I, I hear it all the time. I talk about it. And when I talk about it, people are like, I can't believe you believe that. I'm like, well, sorry. It's just, as, you know, if you're asking me what it's going to take to solve this, it, yeah, we're going to have to reopen the wound. We're going to have to stir the pot. Mm -hmm. People are going to get uncomfortable. You know, uh, people who become set in their ways, businesses that have built their backs on the way the industry runs, mm -hmm. the privatized prison industry, the drug, the, the war on drugs, the DEA, like a lot's going to change. And it would make some people really uncomfortable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would love to see a, a, a another place do it first so that the United States can be like, oh, look, it works. But mm. um, I don't know. We'll see. We can't wait any longer. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's it right there. Yeah. Well, we can all do what we can do. I mean, we have what we have. You have your book. We have our voice. We have our groups. We have our jobs. We have our, our, our position on the front lines doing what we can. And hopefully we make enough noise and people will listen to us. So. That's all we can do, right? Yeah. Well, thank Absolutely. you so much, Travis, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, really thank good. you so much for having me. I, I really did love your book so much. And so it's wonderful to have this opportunity to, to chat with you guys. Oh, thank you. Right back at you. Mike's got a great book, too. It's called Loving Lions. 
it's really very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, my Amazon cart today. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was very nice to have you on. I really appreciate it. It was very nice to meet you. Um, I know that you and Maureen had already met, but um, it was very nice to meet you and hear about your position, your book. Uh, we're going to make sure that our listeners have access to these links. Once again, that's fightingforspace.com where they can find access to the book. And if they are on Twitter, it is T Lupic, correct? L-U-P-I-C-K, T Lupic. That's it. And if they'd like to follow you, they just go right into Twitter and hit follow. Right? Exactly. Thank right. you. And uh, well, hopefully we will uh, chat again when the world changes and we can talk <laughs> about how all of these ideas help fuel that. And in oh. the meantime, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage.